We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Today, we got to get to the long lost chapter of Jonah. Right? We talked about the VeggieTales version of Jonah. We talked about all kinds of kids' books that are likely titled Jonah and the Whale or something like that. And you get this story where God comes to Jonah. He says, hey, I want you to go to this place called Nineveh. Those are your enemies, the Assyrians who are trying to take you over. And I want you to go there to this violent people. I want you to tell them, I want you to tell them to turn away from their violence and to turn toward me. And so usually here's how the kid's version of the story goes. Jonah hears that and he's scared. And he goes, oh, I don't want to go there. They're so, they're so mean. They're slapping people with fish. That's the VeggieTales version. What? Who comes up with this stuff? So then the, the cucumber and the tomato hop in a boat and they go somewhere else, right? Like, so, so Jonah starts running away and then God keeps coming after him and he pursues him. And then there, he sends this big storm while he's on the boat to get his attention. And then Jonah gets thrown into the sea and then a giant fish comes and swallows Jonah up. And then finally Jonah repents. He goes, God, I've been such a fool. I'm sorry. Where can I go to escape you? I can't run away from you. You are in control of everything and salvation belongs to you also. And so then this fish vomits Jonah up and he ends up on the shore and then he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the message God told him to preach. And everybody in Nineveh repents. They're like, oh, I'm so sorry for slapping people with fish. That must have been awful to have a smelly fish in your face. Sorry about that. Won't do it again. And then Jonah's the hero. Happy ending the end, right? So that's usually how the kids' version goes. And if we stop at chapter three, where we ended last week, we could, not quite that silly, but we could kind of make it sound close to that story. But there's this fourth chapter that most of those kids' tales never get to. There's a fourth chapter here. It's kind of like when you're watching, we were watching a movie last night, Bethany and I, and it got to the end and we were waiting. It was this movie called Knives Out. Many of you actually recommended it to me. It's really good. And uh, we get to the end of it and then the credits are there and we're like, let's keep watching. Maybe there's some post-credit scenes, right? And she's like, no, there's not. And I'm like, yeah, but Marvel does it on every one of them. And Chris Evans, Captain America himself was in this movie, so maybe they'll do it. I want to know what happens later. I want to know what happens with the characters, right? I want to know, like, just a shot into the future, what happens. But it never came. It was, it was a bummer. Uh, the story was completed in their eyes, whoever wrote it. But this story is not completed, and this is not a post-credit scene. This is part of the story, and we do get to see what happens with Jonah. What does he think after that whole situation? So here we go. Jonah chapter 4. Read along with me. It's only uh, 11 verses, so we'll read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll get started. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. We'll dive back into that and look at why was he mad. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to receive your word to us this morning. God, not just entering into a textbook or an ancient text from thousands of years ago, but your word that you are speaking to us today. May we be transformed by it in the power of your spirit. For the glory of the Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a long time ago, not quite this long ago of the story, but when I was a child, and that was a long time ago, I had hair then on my head and not on my face. I was give or take about eight years old, and I was miserable. I felt like just stuff at home was just a mess. Uh, I, I had like some friends that were mad at me at school and I came home that day and my parents had done something that just, oh man, it sent me over the edge. And I went down into the basement, like Jonah going down, went down into my room and I shut the door and just in tears, I started cursing God. I felt like, Life was unjust, it was unfair, and as far as I could understand at eight years old, I had the worst life anybody ever could have ever had in the history of life. And so I was angry at God, and I started to throw something in God's face to prove that he was not a good God, not just to me, but overall. And I said, you're the one who sent a flood and destroyed the whole world. And I was angry enough to curse God because I had thought, I had believed at the time that if you cursed God, he would just strike you down right there. Right, that's what Job's friends told him. If you remember the story of Job, just curse God and die. So I was ready to do that, just to curse God and die. Because my life was so miserable at eight years old. Thank God, God is patient, compassionate, gracious, and he gave me some more time, and he worked things out through me. But yes, this is your pastor standing before you right now. That was my attitude, right? And I was so angry about this because, one, I was so arrogant and prideful that life revolved around me. And so when things didn't go my way, it upset me. But also because I had a deep lack of understanding about who God really is and about the nature of his love and his character, and his grace, and his compassion. And so just as an example, what I didn't understand even about the flood that happened, you guys remember the story of Noah, right? 
That's another one that gets turned into a little children's tale, but it's a horrific story in reality. We'll get to that one another day, don't worry. But that story that I was throwing in God's face, let's, let's think about what actually happened there. Like at the very beginning of all things, if we turn back to Genesis, we're told that God creates everything, right? He sets the sun and the stars and the moon and the sky, and he creates the land and the sea. But what he does in order to create this space where he could put land and plants and animals and birds and people is he separates the waters. We're told at the very beginning that God separates the waters. I told my wife this morning, I wanted to do like a little, have a bowl, a clear bowl so you can see me do this. But as I did it, it was like the water just kept going through my fingertips. And I was like, I can't separate the waters like God. I'm not God. It was a good reminder. I'm just, I'm just me, right? But that's what he does. He, he pulls the waters apart and creates this space where life and humanity and creation can flourish. And some point thousands and thousands of years later, God's looking out and he's seeing these people I created to represent what I'm like to the rest of creation. These people that I appointed to partner with me in seeing all of the goodness of my world flourish and be good and great. All they do is rebel against me. And all they do is keep asking to live life their own way apart from me in this world that I made. And all they do is keep serving other false gods that didn't create this world. And so what does God finally do in sorrow and deep sadness and grief, not out of malice or anger, he simply removes his hand and the waters come flushing back in. That's all he does. He gives them what they want. You want to live in this world without the one who created the world, without the one who's sustaining the world, without the one who's holding chaos back apart from you. This is why the ancient Near Eastern world saw water as chaos, because that's what was there before God made order, separated it. So he says, is this really what you want? And in deep sadness, he pulls it apart. But in God's goodness and his compassion and his grace and in his patience, what he does is he says, I'm not done with humanity yet and I'm not done with my good world yet. I will bring full restoration to it. And so he appoints one person, one person who's willing to say, okay, you are the God of this world. You are in control. I do see your hand at work here. That's the only reason that Noah is called righteous and blameless. Not because he was a perfect dude who never did anything wrong, but because he recognized the God who put it all there. So he says, okay, you, let's see if we can do something with this. And he, he saves this guy and his family and he saves some animals and he says, let's kind of have a restart here, right? And so they do that and they continue building this family and this creation. And guess what? Humanity keeps messing it up over and over again. And so this family that God called and he saved to, to say like, hey, you're gonna be this new representation of me to creation. They mess up so much, they end up in slavery over and over again, but the earlier on, the early years of them is they're enslaved to Egypt. And what does God do? He rescues them. He saves them. He pulls them out of that slavery and out of that bondage and out of that darkness. And as he's bringing them into this land, right? Separating the waters, this land that is bountiful. It's got so much good stuff in it. What he's got to do is he's got to show them, I'm the God who parted the waters to give you life. So he gives them a little reminder and he does that in a sea, just a little picture of what he did with the whole world. 
and he allows them to cross over dry land safely. And then the Egyptians start chasing after them. They still, at this point, don't get that this God is in control of the whole world. Even after he showed them over and over and over and over, 10 times over again. So they start running after the Israelites saying, no, we're gonna bring them back as our slaves. And what does God do? Not out of malice, not out of anger, he simply removes his hand and the waters swallow them up. And so what becomes salvation for the Israelites is destruction for the Egyptians. Why am I telling you this story? It's the wrong water story, right? We're talking about the one with the water and the big fish in it, right? With Jonah. Telling this story because a couple reasons. One, I believe we see another little micro example of God doing that for Jonah in chapter four, where he goes, here's what it looks like with my hand over creation, causing flourishing and growth and life. Look, this plant grows in a day to give you shade. Here's what it looks like when I take my hand off of creation. It withers, it dies, scorching wind comes in and beats down on you. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry at what I'm doing with my world? That's one reason. The other reason is I think Jonah is a shining example of what eight-year-old me was like too. He's just mad, stomping his feet. He's upset at God. He's cursing him and wants to die. Why? Because just like me, he's selfish and arrogant. And the first time things do not go his way, he is so upset and he takes it out on God. And also just like me, he has a very shallow understanding of God's love and grace and work in this world. So let's rewind a little bit. Chapter three, last verse, verse 10. This is what Jonah gets upset about. God saw the actions of Nineveh, that they had turned from their evil ways. That means they trusted what God said. They believed the God of Jonah, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one who created all things. They believed him. Even after Jonah gave the worst sermon imaginable. Like, I know I give some bad sermons sometimes, you guys, but I don't think any of my sermons have been quite as bad as the one Jonah gave to Nineveh in chapter three. Could you imagine me coming up here on stage after we're singing some beautiful songs and I go, hey guys, in 40 days, you're all gonna get demolished. And then I just walk off. That'd be terrible, right? Now, I feel like I've given way better sermons than that and I don't get the response that Jonah gets, right? I just don't. It's no shame on any of us here, okay? The Lord does what the Lord does, right? God uses this terrible sermon that Jonah gives, five words in the Hebrew language. You guys are all gonna die. And he uses that to save a whole city of people and their cows, as we're told. God uses that in such a mighty way. And so if I'm Jonah, if like, he's a prophet, like this is what he does. He goes around saying, this is what God says and hoping people will listen to him, right? So if I'm Jonah in this moment, I'm going like, dude, I nailed it. Because that's again, my arrogance, right? That was awesome. Like the the whole city listened, the king of Nineveh listened. So they all listen. So God relents from the disaster he had threatened them with and he did not do it. Verse one of chapter four, in your, your versions might say this, but 
The version I read out of Christian Standard Bible just starts with, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Your version might say, but Jonah. Now I've said this before, and I know I've heard many of you say it, two favorite words when they're put together in the Bible, but God. When the world is just a mess, everything is falling apart and it's broken, but God, but God is still at work. When you see, but in someone else's name, it's probably not gonna go as well. God just showed up. God just did what he does. God just was at work bringing restoration and healing and life and forgiveness. But Jonah, and now we're gonna see all through chapter four, this juxtaposition, big word, sorry kids, this huge difference between God and his character and Jonah and his nature. Jonah was angry and he starts praying to the Lord. He goes, And we're finally told here, I kept telling you I wasn't gonna give you spoilers and then I gave you spoilers all the time, but now we hear it straight from Jonah's mouth himself. Why did he run away in the first place? Was he scared of Nineveh? Were they gonna slap him with the fish? No, this is what Jonah says. Isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled Tarshish to Tarshish in the first place. I knew, and this is what Jonah throws in the face of God. If I could one-up Jonah on anything from eight-year-old me to Jonah, it's that I threw something that I thought was a calamity, a, a tragedy, a huge disaster in God's face. Still not right. Jonah throws something good in God's face as if it were a bad thing. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents. That means you turn away from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? God, I knew you were such a good, loving God. I knew you were compassionate and full of grace. I knew that you were slow to anger. This is why I would rather die. Do you know what Jonah's quoting right here? This is actually one of the most quoted lines of scripture in the whole Old Testament, perhaps even one of the most out of the whole Bible. And the first time it's said is from God himself. In Exodus 34, verse 6, we have it on the screen here. Now, what we need to know about this moment is this is after God brought Israel across the sea, like we talked about, saved them from slavery in Egypt, and he is bringing them into a good place now. And he calls up Moses, the representative, and he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. Because I have saved you, I have called you, I have loved you, I am your God, you are my people. Here's now how you live. And it's not just like this oppressive thing, like I wanna give you rules and make you do what I want. It's you've been slaves for 400 years, you don't even know how to live in the world without a bad master telling you what to do. Let a good master show you the right way. And so God gives them this good way to live. And the people at the bottom of the mountain while Moses goes up are all like, whatever God says we'll do, we'll do all the things that God wants. And literally, while Moses is up there getting this word from God, they start breaking all the things right then and there. They create this statue out of gold of a cow. 
we're going to actually talk a lot about cows today. I didn't even know that. It wasn't, wasn't in my original head. But cows are showing up everywhere. So we'll get to that. They make the statue out of gold of a cow and they start worshiping it. And they say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And God's furious. Like he wasn't furious when he allowed the flood to come. He's mad now though. But you know what God does? He doesn't destroy. He gives compassion and grace and forgiveness. And he's patient with them. And this is what he says when Moses comes back up and Moses was so mad. Moses threw down the tablets that he had all God's law on and they broke. And God says, get some more tablets. I'm not done with these people yet. And this is what he says. The Lord passed in front of him and said, the Lord, the Lord. When you see Lord in all caps like that, it's the name that God gave to his people, Yahweh. So he's saying, Yahweh, me, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love and truth. It's the first time it shows up. And then God's people would quote it over and over again. It's in Psalms. It's in Proverbs. It's it's all over the place. Our God is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger. He's full of love. This was a beautiful thing. This was a reassurance for God's people to remember God has not given up on us. God is still at work in his world. God still cares about us. And Jonah probably loved this fact when it was pointed at him and his people. When it was about Israel. But when God is the same God to Nineveh that he was to Israel, when God proves that his character and his nature is true all the time with other people that mess up just as bad as Israel had messed up, suddenly this makes him furious. Not them, God. Do you realize who they are? That love is supposed to be for me, for my family, for my people. Not them, So like a good nationalist, Jonah gets so upset at God when his love is extended to anyone outside of his nation's borders. Now, listen, you hear that like trigger word. I know, listen, we're not talking politics. We are, we're talking politics. We're not talking American politics right now. We're talking the politics of just people throughout the history of the world. What's going on here? Jonah did not want to go preach to Nineveh, not because he was scared of them, but because they were Nineveh, because it was the Assyrians, because it was another nation that Israel did not like. That's nationalism. Was Jonah's problem nationalism? Yes. Jonah didn't want to go to them because they were specifically not just their nation. They were specifically the Assyrians. That's racism. Is that a problem here? Yes. Maybe you're like, I don't see those things, Chris. I think it's because he just thought, no, they're so bad, they're far beyond saving. That's a problem with arrogance. Yes, it was all of that for Jonah. I'm not saying it's all of that for us. Maybe. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's another thing you've invented that's new outside of what was going on in this guy's heart thousands and thousands of years ago. But for some reason, all of us have the same kind of thing inside of our heart, if we're really honest with ourselves, that says, I deserve God's grace, but not that one. 
not that person, right? God, I love when you're compassionate and gracious and slow to anger with me. I love that you're full of love with me. Do you know what this person did to me though? And I gotta tell you, eight-year-old me at that time, it wasn't just that I was mad that things weren't going my way. It's that I was also mad that things were going well for the people I was mad at. That's the reason I was so upset at God. And I still have some of that in my heart today. And I'm asking you to be honest with yourselves if some of that's there too. So again, those trigger words, I know I said it. I said it, nationalism, racism. Ooh, I'm not talking about America 2020, you guys. I'm talking about the heart of humanity where we're willing to accept God's grace for us, but we don't think others deserve that. It, that this wasn't an American problem. This was a Jonah problem in Israel. And I don't even know what year this was. A long time ago. It's a human problem. We all have that in our hearts. He's so angry at God for being who God is and who he was to Israel. Do you know Israel did all these terrible things too? Israel was sacrificing their own children at one point to other false gods. Israel was attacking other nations too. They were attacking themselves. They were at civil war with one another. They were killing brother and sister. They were doing awful, vile things to women in their community. They were terrible, just like Nineveh. And yet God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, full of love with them. He was patient. That's what that slow to anger means. There's going to come a day where that anger finally comes. But what God did is he gave chance after chance after chance. You know, we, we talked about with the Egyptians. He gave Pharaoh 10 chances slow to anger. He does not want disaster to come. That's what Jonah says. You relent from sending disaster. Why? Because this is his world that he loves and he cares about. All of it, every bit of it, every person in it and every animal in it and every plant in it and everything. I love that Jonah ends with, and many cattle, many cows, so my translation I read says, as well as many animals, but many translations and the actual original Hebrew word says, and a bunch of cows. God says, Jonah, are you mad about the plant, but you don't think it's right for me to care about the city where there is over 120,000 people and a bunch of cows? The Bible's weird sometimes, you guys. Let's just acknowledge that, right? What do you do with that? And I, I was reflecting on that this week and I was going, man, that just reminds me how much God loves his world. He, he's concerned with the people there. He's concerned with even the animals there because they're his. There's a, a proverb that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And the, that word thousand is not literal. It's just like a big word to say all of them. God, they're his. He made them. He loves them. This is the same God who caused a storm to come. The same God who caused a great big sea creature to come and swallow Jonah up. And it's the same God now who causes a plant to grow overnight. And the same God who commands a worm 
to come and destroy that plant. From the great big fish to the great big storm to the little tiny worm, it's all God's. This is his world. That's why we were proclaiming that this morning so much. It's his and he loves it. He is not giving up on it. He is slow to anger with it. He is slow to bring disaster to it. Why? Because he wants it to flourish and he wants it to be good. That's what he declared at the very beginning. This is good. And guess what? He's been at work ever since we messed it up to make it good again. But he wants us to partner with him in that. Jonah's not partnering with him here. He's sulking and he's fighting against him. And finally, when he's backed into a corner, he goes, fine, God, I'll do what you ask. But he does the bare minimum and he does it in a way to almost like spite God. And then what does he say? In 40 days, you'll be overturned. He walks out of the city. God comes to him and he goes, Jonah, is it right for you to be so mad? And he doesn't even answer. Look at this, verse four and five. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? There is no response. He's given God the silent treatment. It's like he stiff-armed him. Verse five, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Wait a second. I thought we just heard what's gonna happen to the city. But Jonah's not taking no for an answer. What did he tell him in how long? 40 days? This dude's willing to sit there in the sun for 40 days to see this city burn. He's hoping that they would do something wrong now and mess it up and go, see God, smite them. How much wickedness has got to be in someone's heart to desire that? And God comes to him again, like, Again, if I'm God, I'm going, all right, dude, you had your chance. I thought we settled this at the bottom of the ocean inside the belly of the beast. But apparently we haven't. You can just sit out there in the scorching sun and you can die of dehydration. But God instead comes to him and he causes a plant to grow and he gives him shade. Have you guys ever, okay, so I have, I have a brother who, when he was 15, he had a kid. And so he wasn't quite super mature yet to be a dad. And I remember one time he would, he thought it was funny to give his little, not even one-year-old yet, like a toy and then take it back just to see his reaction, right? So he's like, he, he's a much better dad now, you guys. 15-year-old, okay? And so he's like, give it to him and take it away. He's like, oh, look at his face, you know? It's terrible. This is not what God's doing right here. He's not going at Here's a plant, Jonah, and some shade. That's nice, isn't it? Ha <laughs> ha, sucker. That's not what God's doing. He's trying to teach him a lesson, right? Because he tells him, listen, you had so much joy over this plant. You guys, this is the first time in the whole book of Jonah that we hear Jonah's happy. Did you know that? The rest of the time, he's upset. He's sad. He's on the run. The first time Jonah's happy and it's because there's a plant to give him shade. Jonah, verse six, was greatly pleased with the plant. The only time he's happy because it's for his own personal comfort. Can we just be real for a second? Like how often are we expecting God to be about our own personal comfort? And that's what's gonna make us happy in relationship with him, right? But the second that goes away, he's no longer a good God. 
So God patiently is trying to teach Jonah this lesson. He takes that plant away and he goes, listen, you cared about the plant. What about this great city of people? That's my plant, Jonah. I caused the seed to grow. I put it there. I spoke it into creation. I labored over it. You did nothing. It's mine. And I love it just like you're mine and I love you. And this whole city, yeah, they're a mess. But there's 120,000 people there who don't know the right from their left. That's a weird statement right there. Many people think they're saying 120,000 children who are too young to learn yet. Am I right-handed or am I left-handed? Like, you know, they don't know, right? But that would mean, if that's true, that that city was like over 600,000 people. And actually, we know historically that city gates would not have held that many people. So I think God's talking about all the people there. The original Hebrew word is not for children. It's people, men, women, children, 120,000 people here who don't know their right from their left. It doesn't mean that they're stupid. It doesn't mean that they can't take directions. What it means, this was a, a euphemism, this was a saying in the Hebrew that would mean you just don't know any better. And this is the same thing that Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross, when he's going to a murderous, torturous, awful death. Like you thought the Assyrians were violent people, the Romans were just as violent, maybe even worse. And when Jesus is hanging, do you know what he says? We have it in Luke 23. You can put it up on the screen. Jesus, going to his own death, says this, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. They don't know any better. They're like children. They don't know their right from their left. Jonah's going, God, you don't know any better. You don't know who these people are. Don't save them. And God's going, no, no, listen, none of you know any better. None of you know any better. You need to turn to me. I'm the only one who has the way to life. Jonah, they don't know any better. Isn't it right for me to have compassion on them and grace and mercy and kindness and to give them another opportunity to turn back to me? And Jesus is saying this on the cross too. The same person. Jesus and God in this story are the same. Not Jonah. Jonah is not the hero. Jesus on the cross saying, God, they don't know any better. While they're driving nails through his skin, while they're beating him, while they're torturing and killing him, they don't know any better, God. Forgive them, Father. And he still, because he didn't stay dead, because he rose again in the power of God, in the spirit dwelling within him, he still says that for you and I today. Father, forgive them. They don't know any better. But guess what? Once we've been filled with the Spirit, Jesus, who rose again in the Spirit, has given his Spirit to empower his church, his people. Guess what? We don't have that same excuse anymore. So actually, that grace and compassion, just like God was doing for Nineveh, who didn't trust God when Jonah did, that grace and compassion, God wants, he goes, guys, the world doesn't know any better. Stop judging them so harshly. Stop ripping them apart because they don't have the same morals you do. They don't know their right from their left. You have seen more clearly because the spirit has opened your eyes. We don't have an excuse now. We can't be Jonah sitting outside sulking, waiting for God to smite the other people. No, God has called us to partner with him. 
And when we sing clearly, we can enter into that partnership, recognizing this is his world and it's a good world and he will make it fully good again one day. And he wants us to be part of that. Does that make sense? That is what Jonah is about. I shared this uh, last two weeks ago. This is the last thing we'll we'll close on today is that Tim Keller makes a, a point to say this story is very much like the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son right? That's what we call it, the prodigal son. But it's really a story about the father. And he had two sons. And he had one son who ran away from him and had to hit rock bottom before he would come back. Then he had a second son, an older son, who did all the right things on the surface because he expected his father to bless him. And what Tim Keller points out is that this story, Jonah is both of those. First two chapters, he's the younger son running away. But the next two chapters, he's that older son going, God, I did all the right things. I did what you asked me to do. Israel's your people, not them. And just like the older brother goes outside of the party and he's sulking and the father asks him, won't you come back in and party? And Jesus ends the story there. We don't know. In the same way, we're left with that cliffhanger here. God's going, Jonah, isn't it right for me to love 120,000 people and all their cows? And we don't get an answer. Just like that first question, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah ignores him. Silent treatment. We don't know what Jonah does here. Because again, it's not about Jonah. It's about God wanting to partner with you and me. And so he's, he's asking that question at Jonah, but really it's like, it's like, this is another great way Tim Keller says, it's like he's thrown a spear and Jonah steps out of the way at the last minute and now it's coming at you. This question is for you. Isn't it right for me to love and care for my good world? Won't you partner with me in it? And we're left there going, we don't know Jonah's answer, but what's ours? Missio, what's our answer in that? Will we partner with God in his good work to bring healing and restoration to his good world? I pray that we will, but we need the power of his spirit to do that. So pray with me.